Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today's going to be one of our invention episodes, the first of a series, in fact. We're going to be doing a couple of episodes on the history and invention of document duplication. And I think this is a fantastic subject for our show, because one of our favorite things to do is uh, look at something that is is, is so mundane that you, you don't even notice it's there anymore, mm-hmm. and rediscover what's strange about it. And I think documents are a wonderful example of that, because documents are kind of, it, it's the, the fish asking what is water situation. We Documents are such a fundamental part of our, our culture and our our economic and legal lives that we we don't even stop to think what life would be like without them. Yeah, just for, for many of us in a given day, just think how many documents we create uh, or we abandon or delete. Uh, you know, we create them for matters that are serious, but also matters that are trivial, work related, personal. Um, you know, we'll just we'll just create a new document at the drop of a hat. But, but just even considering like the basic idea of document duplication, which we're going to be covering, uh, just you think about like sending an email. I send you an email of a document, and uh, a copy of that document is saved for my purposes. Uh, and then if you respond to me, uh, that probably also has another copy of the original document at the bottom. Um, so all of this just occurs without us putting any effort into it at all. You know, it's funny how much that in particular connects to something we'll talk about later in this episode, which is that uh, early mechanical processes for document duplication were often very focused on replicating outgoing correspondence. This is a thing that was incredibly important for for business and legal and personal Mm -hmm. purposes uh, all throughout the years. You wanted to have a copy of a letter that you were going to send to somebody else so you could remember what you said. Uh, And that just happens automatically now because, of course, we're, we're sending most of our messages digitally. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, let's just back up and just think about the document itself. Um, And we've touched on some of this before, just talking about the history of of writing and language. But a document is essentially human thoughts committed to a medium via writing and or drawings. And in this way, such thoughts can be recorded, clarified, preserved, and passed on to others across space and time, in many ways transcending what is possible via merely spoken language. Right. And there's there's actually a great little description that I, 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 uh, I'd like to borrow from Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey. In it, uh, Clark is describing the music of Mozart playing on the spaceship Discovery uh, and refers to them as, quote, the frozen thoughts of a brain that had been dust for twice a hundred years. One of the interesting things about Mozart is Mozart goes back to a time where we don't even have original recordings. So we, we mm-hmm. don't have audio recordings of anything that Mozart would have been present for the playing of in his own lifetime. All that we can get is Mozart's music through documents written as sheet music and translated to people who would reproduce it years later. Yeah, so the, the, the amazing thing about documents in general is that you know, while translation is often required, we can still essentially take documents from centuries or millennia ago and kind of uh, you know, resuscitate them, rehydrate them uh, so that these uh, desiccated thoughts can uh, come to life again and resonate once more inside of living human brains. A document is a code that allows you to briefly catch the virus of someone else's thoughts from a different time and place, yeah. Yeah. 
So documents have been with us for a very long time, dating back to uh, the late 4th millennium BCE in Mesopotamia, at least. Uh, while some scholars believe writing may have spread from culture to culture, the majority see it as a situation of independent invention in the various major civilizations of the ancient world, as it becomes increasingly important to record trade data, laws, histories, and more. So in other words, the advancement of these civilizations requires the use of documents. Now, as humans possess neither perfect document recall or unlimited memorization storage space, one of the things about official documents like this is that their use often necessitated duplication. Now, to illustrate this, I thought we might go back a good 2,500 years uh, for an example from the Neo-Babylonian period. Um, The source I was looking at here was uh, Neo-Babylonian Record-Keeping Practices by Heather D. Baker, published in 2003's Ancient Archives and Archival Traditions. In this, the author discusses the importance of duplication in these ancient document systems. Um, and, and, and to be clear, once more, the Neo-Babylonian period here, we're talking about 626 BCE through 539 BCE. So we're not going back super far in the written record, but we're still going back quite a ways. What did they do? How did they make copies of their important documents? They did not have photocopy machines yet. Right. So she points out that, first of all, you know, there's, there's linguistic evidence for the use of copies, uh, various words that uh, concern um, uh, the, the, the duplication of documents. And then we, of course, have examples of surviving copies from ancient times as well, though she contends that the use of copies is probably underrepresented in the archaeological record. And uh, specifically with this exam- with these examples from this time period, we're talking about private contracts a lot of the time inscribed on pillow-shaped tablets, pieces of clay complete with info, signatures, and dates. Okay, so you'd have like a clay tablet and you'd make inscriptions in it, indentations or markings in it that would be a, an, a record of some kind of transaction usually. Right. And she writes, quote, whatever form they took, private archival documents were written and kept primarily as proof that an obligation existed or had been discharged or as evidence of title to property. And of course, this is, uh, this is not that far removed from our current use of, of documents. Um, she points out some extremely relatable reasons for duplication of such documents, though. Um, and, and again, these are reasons for dupl- duplication that are largely still with us today. Uh, she brings up the division of inheritance between three parties, in which each party would require a valid document to demonstrate their in- entitlement to an estate portion. Uh, she um, Also, she mentions the idea of a person, say, inheriting three different pieces of property and then selling one of them off. This individual would need a copy of the original agreement to pass on to the buyer, but would need to keep the original uh, document pertaining to the items they didn't sell off. Okay, so the tablet, the physical document, uh, provides a sort of authorization of how things are or how things should be. They give you legitimate claim to something beyond just saying, this is mine. Right, right. You know, and, and it creates a paper trail, or I guess in this case, a, a tablet trail. Um, but uh, another interesting thing that, that she brings up that I didn't even think about, because on one hand, okay, let's say you're talking about an agreement between two parties. Obviously, both parties need to uh, have a copy of the agreement so they can look at it, like, oh, what did we say about that property line or whatever? Well, let's look at the, the document. But another factor here is that, uh, and this is something explicitly stated in the records, according to Baker, two copies of an agreement are made because then neither party can alter the writing of the agreement. Or rather, you can alter it, or the other person can alter it, but each side has a copy of the original. So, you know, you're not going to be able to change things in your favor on both documents because you do not have possession of both copies. Two copies, I guess, keep both parties honest. Ah, I see. So if only one party had a contract, they could go get a scribe to make a new one that said something different and then say this was always the way it was. And all, right. all you could do is say, no, it wasn't. But you wouldn't have anything physical to point to. Right. Uh, she writes, quote, as far as record keeping practices are concerned, it is impossible to determine whether a duplicate was prepared at the time of the original transaction or later, except when the, a particular phrase, and she shares this uh, phrase, uh, is present, indicating a copy made from an older damaged original. Now, th- this is, I thought this was interesting because it yeah, points out that, okay, obviously, some of the time you might be creating that duplicate copy 
at the time that the original is authored. Uh, like, oh, we're entering into this agreement. We need two copies. We need three copies, what have you. But then there are going to be other cases where, oh, well, we need to make a copy of this document uh, for some purpose, or this document is broken or is uh, decaying or is something damaged about it, and we need to make sure that the information of, on, on that tablet survives uh, the decay of the medium. And so sometimes we can't tell which type of copy something would be when looking at it. It's not mm-hmm. always necessarily clear whether something is the original or a copy made concurrent with the original or a copy made later. Right, except in some circumstances where there's some sort of linguistic uh, clue. And uh, and yeah, th- this uh, this idea too of the, the need for document duplication because uh, the media upon which doc- documents are inscribed, they just inherently deteriorate. And, and that is the case throughout most of human history, whether you're dealing with clay tablets or, um, you know, some sort of uh, oracle bones or uh, certainly parchment. Um, you know, these are not things that can last forever. But in, in many cases, we want the information uh, to last beyond the lifetime of that particular physical medium. Uh, she also points out that documents were also copied in the course of scribal training, and the resulting duplications may have found their way into private archives. Oh, that's interesting. It makes me wonder if, uh, you know, because, of course, many texts that existed in the ancient world no longer survive. There, we don't mm-hmm. know of any copies that exist. Maybe they're buried out in the desert somewhere, but we don't have any that are available to us. And I wonder if some of the texts that came through from the ancient world in plentiful supply actually came through, maybe not because they were important in themselves, but because they were like example texts that yeah. people practiced copying text on. Now, in that same book, that uh, Ancient Archives and Archival Traditions from 2003, there's another author who touches briefly on duplication, and this is Klaus R. Winhof, uh, discussing documents kept uh, by old Assyrian traders. And this is interesting because we, we've talked. I think we've talked about this on the show before in the past, where you have you're dealing with with um, with with clay tablets here, but you also have you have envelopes around some of those tablets, stamped clay envelopes. Uh, so obviously, there, there's only one way to get. <laughs> you're not going to be able to get the um, uh, the original out of that uh, that that envelope. That ov- envelope is sealed. Uh, for a reason, you know, it's uh, it's about sort of like binding the information inside it. Uh, so in cases like this, you would need a duplicate of the copy that is sealed inside the envelope. Ah, okay, that makes sense. I mean, it would be much the same, I guess, as if you had a, a you know, it's like if your uh, your grandmother gave you a, a, a gift wrapped for Christmas, mm-hmm. and it was important to you to 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 keep that gift wrapped within that. Um, uh, within that package, but you also wanted to know what she gave you for Christmas, so you also had a, a copy of the toy that was contained within that package, and uh, you just kept the actual gift uh, wrapped the entire time. Doubles is better, or triples is best, actually. <laughs> yes. So these are just some brief examples, but I think they help illustrate the fact that document duplication has been with us a very long time, and it was just necessary to ensure that documents documents could do what they needed to do within a given culture. Though, I think it's interesting. So while document copying has been with us since the ancient world for all these reasons we've been talking about, I I think it's also important to appreciate ways in which our thinking about documents has changed, due in part probably to changes in technology that uh, that make it easier to copy documents and to changes in the, uh, say, literacy rates within a culture, which uh, also change the way people think about documents. But I was reading a section from a book that I found really interesting. So it was a book called um, Oral Tradition and the Written Record in Classical Athens by a scholar of classics at Oxford University named Rosalind Thomas. Uh, this was published at uh, Cambridge University Press in 1989. And uh, so this is a section talking about how documents and copies of documents were used in classical Athens. This would have been in, uh, in Greece around the 4th to 5th centuries BCE. And so this would have been a time when documents were available. There was some literacy in the culture and documents were used and referred to, say, in court cases and things like that and for business. But it wasn't a document culture to the same extent that we might consider ourselves part of a document culture. It was a sort of 
halfway document culture. It was a, a proto-document culture. And so the ways they thought about documents and copies were very different than the way we think about them. And so I, I wanted to mention a few things she, she talks about that struck me as interesting. And so during the 4th and 5th centuries BCE, the use of written documents was increasing in various spheres of life in Athens. You could argue this was a time of transition from a primarily oral culture to an increasingly document-conscious culture. Uh, and, and there were more books circulating during the late 5th century Athens, and this led to critiques by figures like Plato and other philosophers who believed that the spoken word had virtues that were lost in a literary culture, actually. Like uh, Plato stressed, for example, that a document used in court must be verified by the oral testimony of eyewitnesses to its drafting, hmm. uh, among other critiques, not as much related to the legal system, having to do with memory and so forth. Right. Uh, but from here, Thomas goes on to say that we can actually tell from many clues that the ancient Greeks did not think about written documents and copying exactly the same way we do. And she points out that it's it's obvious that the significance of a document often lay within its non-written aspects and that documents were sometimes treated, not only original documents, but copies of those documents were treated as, quote, iconic or material symbols more so than as a reference tool. And a great example here is comparing stone inscriptions versus uh, originals written on what we might think of as paper or papyrus. Like the question is, which is more authoritative? Uh, so you might have an original record of a statement that could be a treaty between two nations, or it could be a law issued, or it could be decree by a ruler. And you would have an original record of that statement uh, that we could think of as a paper record. And then you would have copies of that statement made on stone that would be considered more the public version. Like you could have a steely that would have a copy of the original decree or treaty or something. And so we would assume, based on our type of document consciousness, that the original paper document is the more authoritative one. And the stone inscription that's a copy of that document is the less authoritative one. Mm -hmm. But people in classical Athens did not necessarily agree with that. Of course, the uh, the process of copying from an original document to a stone inscription is a, a lossy process. This is not 100% uh, fidelity or lossless copying that we count on today. This is copying done by hand and often with just blatant disregard for the actual wording of the original. There would be all kinds of changes and, and mistakes and stuff introduced. In fact, at this time, a lot of times like uh, spelling and punctuation and stuff might not even be standardized. Hmm. But as evidence of this different kind of consciousness, uh, Thomas cites orators from uh, the period who quote documents, and they will refer to the stone inscription copies of those documents, maybe as, it, as the document might appear on a publicly visible stele, rather than the archived originals of those documents. And uh, also, some political documents would like demand obedience specifically to the steely. It might say something like, "It is this steely which will bind you to your oaths." So this, you know, this stone inscription, even though it's a copy that might introduce changes from the original. Hmm. Uh, and Thomas also argues that our concepts of original and copy don't necessarily apply to thinking in classical Athens. Like the Greek word for copy, uh, antigraphon, appears to be used to describe both the archived original document and the publicly visible stele. So you might in this context just as well say that the earlier paper version is a copy of the stele, even though it was made before. And so the idea of a copy has no derogatory implications about the fidelity or authority of the document. And so from all this, Thomas argues that, that an emphasis on verbatim accurate copying, the kind of copying that we would depend on, like if, you know, if you're making copies of something in an office setting and the copies of that document make all kinds of changes to the document, we would consider that a problem. Right. Like that's not even necessarily a poor copy. That is, uh, I mean, it's, it's a fraudulent copy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, Thomas argues that an assumption that a later copy is less authoritative, that is something that tends to come with a more highly literate culture, and 4th to 5th century Athens had not really reached this point. Another thing I wonder, this is not a point that Thomas makes, but I was just thinking, so a lot of these documents in ancient Greece would have been 
attempts to record spoken decrees or agreements. So to take an agreement that had been made between two leaders in spoken form or to record the spoken decree of a ruler or something and write that down, which I doubt would be a process of perfect fidelity, even when first recorded, you know, Mm -hmm. so even the first writing down of this probably introduces some changes. And so does an emphasis on perfect copying also arise more when documents are, uh, when their first instantiation is in written form, you know, when they leave the pen of the original author rather than the mouth, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So basically we could, we could, the, the question might be, yeah, if you have um, written documents arising in response or as a way to uh, support uh, oral agreements, uh, then yeah, you can, you, there may be this looseness in, um, in in the authority of of, of copies, uh, but then when you are depending primarily on the documents, then we see uh, you know the, the the idea of the original document being key and uh, the the fidelity of the document being of of, of prime importance. But there's another thing that uh, Thomas mentions that struck me as really interesting about this different document consciousness. Uh, she points out that there was a, a, an assumption common to many people in classical Athens that. In order to show that a document was no longer in force, the document was supposed to be destroyed or obliterated. Mm. And I think, wow, that is so interesting. That's In most contexts today, that would not strike us as something to do. Like, oh, okay, there's a new system for logging into our timekeeping website at work. Better destroy the old instruction document. <laughs> you know, You just don't use it anymore, right? But there was something about document uh, consciousness at this time and place that suggested almost a kind of magical authority to, say, the the stone on which an inscription is made, or or the sheet on which an archive original of a uh, of a document is is kept. That, like, in in order to indicate that whatever is written on this document no longer holds true, you need to like smash or, or uh, in some way annihilate this document itself rather than just say keeping it for your records, but knowing that it is no longer in force. Yeah. This is interesting to think about. Um, I mean, uh, I guess it's not without uh, its parallels in, in the modern world. I mean, yeah, obviously you can think of top secret documents that are burned after reading and so forth, yeah. sensitive documents that should be shredded or disposed of. I'm well, also But that's rem- more of a security question than a question mm-hmm. of like whether the content still hold true or not, right? Well, well one example that came to mind too was that of uh, an invalid passport. Um, hmm. The passport's generally not destroyed, but uh, at least uh, with, with U.S. passports, I don't know if there's a different practice in other parts of the world, but you get that big hole punched through it. Yes. Um, <laughs> So, which is, isn't quite destruction, but it, you know, it's sort of to say, like, oh, we have physically altered the documents. These documents are no longer valid. Well, that gives a hint to something that actually I think we'll come back to more in the second episode of this series, but the idea of document security that, mm-hmm. say, when you live in a world like us, you know, this is a world in which copies of documents are scarce. They're laborious to produce because they have to be produced by hand. And so, uh, so there's going to be naturally very few copies of most documents, except maybe very widely circulated books. And even those, it, they're expensive and they're costly to produce. They're laborious. They made, they're made by hand and all that. So the ancient world was a, was a situation of global document scarcity in a world of uh, the exact op- opposite, just pro- proliferation of uh, infinite lossless copying of documents through digital means in which we live today the main problems facing us are totally different ones. It's like, how do you keep either yeah, uh, useless or uh, unimportant documents from cluttering up your world or keep sensitive documents from being distributed in ways that they shouldn't be? Now, um, Heather D. Baker in that uh, Neo-Babylonian uh, paper I referenced earlier, uh, they did mention uh, some examples of document destruction. In this case, we'd be talking about the physical breaking of tablets. And if I'm understanding her correctly, um, and it, it does get a little complicated when you're talking about breaking of obligations and also the breaking, the physical breaking of tablets. But apparently the physical breaking of tablets sometimes aligned with the breaking of agreements. Um, and by that, it could also just mean like a debt is paid. And that there were sometimes stipulations that after a sale, for instance, of property, any copies of ownership uh, documents that were not handed over to the new owner were to be broken were to be destroyed. Hmm. 
so it lines up a little bit with what we're talking about here, like yeah, the, the, the physical document uh, as being just sort of like this embodiment of, of, uh, of, of a contract. And then, yeah, if, if the contract is broken or the debt is paid, et cetera, well, what do you do? You need to destroy that. Otherwise, someone might read that and think that somebody still owes somebody money. Well, you know, I guess we can still see echo, even though this is not broadly what we do with the documents in our lives, you can see echoes of it in like, I don't know, movie scenes or plays or something in a story when there is a significant invalidation of a contract, say a character will tear it up, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or they'll or they'll burn an IOU notice when the debt is paid or when it's forgiven or something. Right. Uh, But that seems to be for kind of story purposes. Yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. All right. Well, uh, generally in these episodes, these invention episodes, we talk about what came before. And in talking about documentation, um, duplication technology, uh, it's pretty obvious what came before. We've already referenced it. And that is uh, that copies were made by hand. Uh, This was the way it was for a very long time. Uh, As previously noted with the Neo-Babylonian example, uh, copies of a given document might be made at the point of generation of said document. Um, or they might be made later, uh, either as required for some purpose or simply to replace a damaged copy. Uh, and in that example as well, you know, we mentioned the fact that, that scribes in training would also make copies as well. It is difficult to overstate the importance of, of this scribal labor throughout history. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the invention of writing up until uh, the, the takeover by, uh, by mechanical means of producing copies, Making copies of documents was a major human labor endeavor. Right. And the scribe was key to all of this because that's what a scribe historically did. Uh, or at least that was the, the core responsibility, making copies. They were professional copy makers. And if we were today to destroy all copy making machines in some manner of Butlerian jihad out of uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, then the scribe would be our mintat, uh, a human machine for the creation of copies and duplications. And so scribes were vastly important in numerous ancient cultures. Uh, you know, we, 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 it makes sense, right? Because documents, like we say, they become so important for all of the various functions that are going on within a given culture, within a given empire uh, in, in some of these cases. And so it becomes increasingly important to have scribes to handle these documents, and we have uh, some some excellent examples of uh, you know scribes at work, say in ancient Egypt, and we know many of them by name, uh, such as uh, Ames or Amos, who uh, worked during the 17th century BCE, uh, Aminotep, son of Hapu, who worked during the 14th century BCE, and was later deified, uh, which I think underscores the importance here. Uh, the, the scribes such as this were essential for accounting, for government uh, functions, and also the preservation and dissemination of wisdom. Uh, so, you know, I think the, the Egyptian example here is a great one because, yeah, it underlines that this was a specialized skill um, in, in a given society. And scribes were, in this case, scribes were not made to serve in the army. The sons of scribes entered the profession as well. So it was, it was very important that you, like, maintained the supply of scribes. 
Yeah, and I think it's also important to understand the pervasiveness of the influence of the scribe throughout all levels of a culture, because it's Mm -hmm. not just, say, the business world. Like we've been talking about business contracts, business letters, and and, uh, those kind of financial and business arrangement documents, and also political decrees and things like that. But scribes were equally important for copying religious texts. Probably one of the most copied texts by scribes in the history of the world has been the Bible, you know, copying and just other texts that people... People might want copies of scribes made them all. Yeah, and uh, there's a there's a wonderful uh, uh, level of this too in ancient Egypt because you have the god Thoth. Uh, Thoth was considered the god of scribes, but he was also the scribe of the gods. Mm. As uh, Geraldine Pinch points out in Egyptian mythology, he was the lord of wisdom and secret knowledge. He was the inventor of written language and of languages in general. He was, quote, the excellent of understanding. And he observed and wrote down everything that happened in the world and then reported it to the god Re or Ra each morning. Um, So, he was paired with the library goddess Seshat, and together these two knew the future as well as the past, uh, uh, which is interesting. Here we have the you know the roles of the, the the librarian and also you know the historian and the scribe here, kind of uh, mixing together and and becoming like all knowing. Like this is the center of knowledge. This is how we understand where we've been and where we're going. Wrote down everything that happened in the world. Well, he's a god. He can he can do that. Uh, he was also said to have written forty three books that contained all wisdom needed by humanity, and uh, and he was also essential in enforcing mat the uh, concept of law, order, and balance. So, uh, you know, I think all of this you know, helps just to drive home just how important the scribe uh, is uh, to a, a, a given civilization. Uh, I mean, it, it helps it function. It helps it know what it is as it moves through time. All the wisdom, if it's in 43 books. Yeah. Maybe, but they could be, we don't know how long the books are. Right. Yeah, I guess they're like, you know, you could think of these as magical books, right? Yeah. I might wait for them to come out in paperback. No, no. <laughs> um, so, I, I think, you know, in this we get the the fact that a scribe was also sometimes, but not always, something of an administrator as well. Um, there's a certain amount of power creep that seems to occur with scribes at times. Uh, for uh, the ancient Israelites, for example, scribes acted in positions that we would now associate with lawyers and judges and even journalists. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, I guess literacy and and power over documents in many ways becomes sort of like power over the culture in general. Yeah. And, and this is, uh, we'll come back to this, but uh, it's worth reminding ourselves that the, the role of the scribe was, was not only skilled, but it also uh, had an impact on, on the body, uh, particularly on the eyes. Uh, I was looking back at A History of the Mirror by Mark Pendergast uh, from 2009 that we looked at when we were talking about the invention of the mirror, and he had a tidbit about Jewish scribes. Uh, he writes, uh, quote, Jewish scribes believed that they could improve weak eyes by taking a break from the scrolls and staring into a mirror. Oh, that kind of uh, echoes the, uh, the what the messages you get from HR saying, remember to take a break every so-and-so minutes of staring at a computer and... <laughs> And stare into a mirror instead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, another example that I thought was was interesting about the importance of the scribe. Um, I was looking at um, a PhD dissertation uh, from one Sengwing Ma. Um, he's a scholar of ancient China uh, from two, it's, uh, from 2017, titled "Scribes in Early Imperial China." And uh, notes that, um, first of all, scribal history in ancient China is less studied and understood because, quote, a group of highly educated intellectuals dominated the transmitted textual traditions in ancient China, and they portrayed scribes as corrupt officials manipulating the laws and documents to their own benefit. Now, the, the specific example that, um, that this author brings up, though, is uh, it concerns um, uh, the rule of the first emperor, Quinshi uh, Huang, from the work, uh, is, is covered in the work, The Historical Records. This is a Han text, also known as the Records of the Grand Historian, composed by uh, Sima Tan. Uh, quote, Things in the world, great or small, are all decided by His Highness. His Highness even measures the weight of his paperwork by the Shi. 
uh, one she equals 30.36 kilograms, uh, Ma mentions. Um, continues, every day and night he has an allotment of work. He does not rest until he meets this allotment. So, Ma summarizes this as follows, quote, The passage tells us that the first emperor would never entrust his power to others. In order to achieve that, he ruled over the world of documents, which allowed him to extend his power without the restriction of time and space. His ambition is reflected in the quantity of his daily paperwork. So, documentation is power, uh, but Ma also stresses that no single man, even a great man, could have read all of the paperwork generated by an empire every day. Uh, He had to depend on scribes who accumulated this information and condensed it for his use. Uh, So, this is also where I think the uh, accusation of scribal manipulation and misuse could potentially come into play. You have individuals of great power. They rule over a world of documents. They depend on scribes to handle these documents and also uh, condense information for them. Oh, okay. So, here we're talking about a profession where, on one hand, you could think about them as Uh, faithful duplicators of existing documents. There's a record, a document somewhere, and they will make copies of it so that more people can have access to the information or more people can keep copies or whatever. But that those literacy skills might skew into editing documents and Mm -hmm. summarizing documents and uh, sort of creating sense out of a, uh, out of a mess of documents. And that of course is a, a, a different kind of power altogether. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you know, obviously, we we live in a world today that is that is run by documents and depends heavily on on data and documentation. But at times, like we we sort of we acknowledge it without actually acknowledging it. Like I just think, for instance, mm-hmm. any police show you've ever watched, you know, there's always that scene where they're like, "Oh, I'm going to go do a lot of paperwork on this," and you know, there's some uh, mention of all the paperwork that has to take place as well. Um, but uh, but but sometimes it's with an air of like uh you know it's the system it's the bureaucracy but uh but you know it's it's still inherently part of the whole power system and the you know it, it, like the, the the physical process doesn't work without the data process but of course that's crucial to any kind of work really All right you got to have a record of what you did yes <laughs> now before we get into um mechanical duplication devices i want to come back to eyes for a second here i mentioned uh you know the 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 idea that uh the, the jewish scribes uh might have stared into mirrors to uh, help relieve uh, the strain on their eyes um this reminds me of a point that i think we've mentioned on the show before but it's one that uh, science historian james burke brought up in his book connections discussing uh the link between invention and social need uh, the basic here, of course, is, is that just because a new invention or innovation is technologically possible, it doesn't mean there's a high enough demand for it, etc. Sure. Or that it's cost effective or right, something. Right, right. So in, in this, he ends up talking about um, the use of spectacles uh, and also um, the importance of scribes in Europe. Uh, uh, writing, quote, as the European economy picked up after centuries of invasion, the Dark Ages, any device that would prolong the working life of aging scribes was to be welcomed. Uh, and he also points out that as Europe rebounded from the plague, there was a greatly increased demand for reproduced manuscripts. But the workforce of scribes in Europe had been reduced by the plague as well. Uh, so paper prices were going down, but the cost of skilled scribes to copy books was expensive, a situation that arguably hastens the advancement of the printing press, which, of course, is pretty much the technical, technological advancement of the duplication of documents at the point of initial production. Though with some important uh, unique features, I mean, mm-hmm. for example, you wouldn't – the printing press was a revolutionary invention. So, you know, in the 15th century, suddenly you could mass produce books and pamphlets and, and uh, things we might think of like newspapers today – but uh, because of the uh, the sort of the ordeal of setting the type and everything and making it on a printing press, that was useful for mass-produced items. And you still yes. had this middle category of documents of things you would definitely want copies of, but maybe not thousands of copies of. Right. If it's a personal document between like two parties, three parties, etc., you're not going to yeah, – setting up the printing press to handle that 
uh, would be would be overkill. But if you are looking to say take this particular bit of information, this particular document, and you want uh, you know, um, hundreds of people within a given city to have access to it, then that's where the printing press becomes essential. Uh, it is, again, like you said, mass production, mass duplication of a single document. Now, for that middle category where you've got, say, a, a business or personal document that you want multiple copies of, but it doesn't rise to the level of of hiring out a printing press – there were some other mechanical duplication devices that came before, say, the photocopier that we know of. So turning to mechanical duplication devices that work in that middle range, I, I wanted to mention a couple. One is uh, something I found very interesting. It's known as the polygraph. And no, that is not the so-called lie detector test. This is a totally different polygraph. It was an early duplication device that was invented by an English engineer named John Isaac Hawkins, who lived uh, 1772 to 1854 or 5. And um, he also apparently created one of the first successful designs for an upright piano. Hmm. Uh, and there, there were also some very important design improvements to the polygraph that were contributed later by a guy named Charles Wilson Peel. Apparently, Thomas Jefferson uh, owned several versions of the polygraph machine and was, was famously obsessed with it, actually. <laughs> so how did the polygraph work? Well, first of all, again, we're not at the photocopying stage yet. So this is not a device that's designed to take an existing document and automatically produce a copy. Instead, this is a machine for duplicating copies of handwritten documents at the point of origin. The idea of the polygraph duplicator is pretty simple. So you take the normal physical work of writing a document on paper, and you use that work to produce two documents instead of one. In practice, this meant a machine consisting of two pens connected by a series of levers, springs, and hinges, and you would take one pin in your hand and write your letter out with it, and the motion of that pin would be transferred through the machine to the other pin. So it's literally a second pin connected to your first pin with all these little uh, uh, articulated gizmos on it in order to translate the minute motions of the pin in your hand to the pin that's writing on the second piece of paper. So ideally, you dip your pin in the inkwell, the other pin dips in its inkwell. You write your name, it writes your name on the second sheet of paper, and so forth. As you might imagine, uh, you know, this is a machine that requires very uh, delicate design. Apparently, mm-hmm. it took a lot of tweaking of the design before it worked really well. Uh, this guy, uh, Peel, while trying to make the polygraph more usable, apparently complained that the uh, – he said that the problems with the machine are, quote, hid in impenetrable darkness. <laughs> uh, but eventually, it was made into pretty much usable shape. And uh, this was especially useful for situations that we mentioned earlier in which you need exactly two copies of a document, one for someone else and one for yourself. So this could be useful, of course, if you're writing out contracts or something, But uh, and technically it could be used for anything. But it was apparently especially popular for letter writing, say if you're a law office or even mm. if you're just keeping a personal correspondence. Why might you need a copy of a letter that you are sending to somebody else? Well, Obviously, so you can remember what you said. So imagine you get a letter from somebody who you wrote maybe over a year ago, and it begins, in answer to your question, absolutely not. But (laughs) if you didn't have a copy of the letter you sent and you don't remember what you asked, you're in trouble there. So it's useful as a personal reference, but especially useful for a high stakes kind of uh, correspondence like in business or in a law office or something like that. And so uh, this did prove very useful, but again, it was only for producing duplicate copies of handwritten documents at the point of origin. The machine would have no power whatsoever to uh, to do anything with a document that had already been written because it relies on the power of your writing hand as you write. Mm. Uh, oh, and one funny thing about uh, copies of documents and, and so forth, uh, I found a note from the Monticello Archive website about the polygraph machine, uh, which states that, quote, the original American patent document, patent number X453, granted May 17th to 1803 to John J. Hawkins, uh, apparently that they got his name kind of wrong, was lost in a fire in the patent office in 1836 and is no longer extant. So I guess they didn't have a copy. Huh. 
How, but how many documents? So we know about this document that uh, the original was lost, but how many documents from history were completely lost because there weren't any surviving copies and the original was destroyed in a fire or just moldered in a drawer or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, countless. Uh, you know, we, we, we frequently mention ancient texts on the show, uh, and we have to state, oh, yeah, well, the actual writings of this particular philosopher or writer are lost to us. We only have the, the, uh, the you know, mentions and reverberations of their thoughts in surviving works. Yeah, and sometimes sometimes we even know they did write something because other writers that we do have will quote them, but we don't yeah. have their originals. Yeah, nowadays... It, you almost have to try and engineer that kind of scarcity in something. Uh, I can't think of something in, in terms of like a, a, a written document offhand, but you know there have been projects with, say, albums that have come out where uh, you know you're going to create the scarcity of saying there is only one copy of this, um, uh, etc. What are you thinking, Wu Tang? Uh, well, I guess that does come to mind, but I think there have there have also been some. Uh, some some other attempts, and then yeah, you also get into I guess uh, like limited editions of things, you know, signed limited editions, signed prints, mm. uh, so that even in an age of uh, of duplication and you know high quality duplication, uh, you'll have a, a certain amount of scarcity built into there and may and make the individual copies more meaningful, I guess. Now, there's one other device I wanted to talk about, because the polygraph was not the only mechanical method for the limited copying of handwritten letters at the time. There was another thing that was the so-called letterpress, or the copy press, or the letter copying press. Uh, So the copy press was widely used by clerks and in law offices in the late 18th through all throughout the 19th century, especially to do about the same thing as the polygraph, to make copies of outgoing correspondence, though technically – the copy press was more versatile than the uh, than the polygraph. It could be used to copy anything written on paper, and the method worked like this. So you would take a document or page that you wanted a copy of, and then you would take a, a very thin piece of paper. Uh, uh, I've seen it referred to as like tissue paper or onion skin mm-hmm. paper, and you would moisten that tissue paper, uh, probably with a brush or something like that. And then you would press the moistened tissue paper along with the handwritten original document in a gigantic wooden clamp. So imagine a big wooden board with like a screw or a press lever on top, and you would press this down on the stack of pages. And the pressure would cause some small amount of the ink in the original page to leak out and soak into the moistened tissue paper, creating a copy of the original document. And if you wanted to copy multiple documents at once, or if you wanted to copy a, say, page out of a book while protecting the other pages, you could sandwich each document and the the piece of wet tissue paper it was being imprinted on between sheets of oil paper, which would prevent the water and ink from bleeding out to the other side. So you could actually make a stack of copies of documents all at the same time with these oil, oil papers in between them. This method was actually in use way back into the 18th century. One of the early models was invented by James Watt, the Scottish engineer who was behind uh, important early modifications to the idea of the steam engine. Watt's copy press dates back to about 1780. But uh, I've I've read some accounts from these, these early decades of the copy press that it often didn't work super well, especially with the ink available at the time. It's something that early users of the polygraph actually complained about, saying, oh yeah, the copy made by the polygraph is so much more legible than copies made with the with the letterpress. Hmm. Because to read a copy made with one of these uh, early press methods – uh, you know, it, it was it would depend on all kinds of circumstances, like how much ink you actually got out of the original onto the copy paper, and I think you would often have to uh, hold it up to the light in, in in order to read it. You know, the ink did not come through copiously. Obviously, this method worked better if you made the copy soon after the document was created, I think because the ink had dried less. So Mm -hmm. you can still think of this as a method that favored copies produced roughly at the time of the document's origin. However, it does seem like you could sometimes use this to try to copy pre-existing documents with varying success. And there were many different versions of the copy press using different preparations of ink, uh, copy paper, pressing method, and so forth. And in, in all these different forms, it was a popular method for copying documents all through the 19th century. 
Now, one thing that comes to mind when you bring up the, um, you know, the, the possible copying of older documents uh, is that you're getting into situations where if you're removing any ink from that document, you are, mm. in effect, damaging the original copy. So you're, you're in this balancing act of how can, I, how can I copy that material without destroying or partially eroding the original? It's kind of like, for, for, as a kid, it's like if uh, you have some silly putty in one hand and you have, uh, you know, one of your, your your parents' newspaper in the other, and maybe they haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, you <laughs> you can speaking you can make from experience. Fun, yeah, you can make some fun copies off of that newspaper, but woo, uh, you may you may render it um, uh, um, unusable. You may destroy the original um, um, article, and I'm not sure that your parent is going to uh, accept uh, the silly putty uh, copy uh, in its place. What did the Wizard of Id say? I can't read his text bubble now. <laughs> well, here you go. Here's the the copy I made on the silly putty. Uh, don't hold it just by the top, or it's gonna it's going to uh, elongate. All right. Well, I think we're going to call it there for part one of the series. But in the next episode, we'll be back to discuss more devices that came along for document duplication later on, as well as some of the challenges and changes we face in a world where we take limitless, lossless copying by digital means for granted. That's right. So uh, tune in next time for more. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays in that feed, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas John. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com.